Welcome to the Command Line Podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Command Line Gideon, a self-proclaimed hacker, eccentric, and hacktivist. This is my show about the practice and profession of programming, drawing on well over a decade of professional experience and a lifetime spent hacking, the intersection of technology with society and public policy, and anything else clever, elegant, or funny that catches my mind as a diehard technology geek. I've been transitioning into a new role at the current day job, one that is an interesting intersection. It says developer operations. The idea is to treat infrastructure as code. It leverages a lot of my experience as a software developer, along with the fact that personally, as I'll talk about a little bit in some of the stories I'm going to share in the upcoming feature here, uh, the closeness, the affinity that I've had for server administrators, network administrators, and people who work more on the operations side. It's definitely a lot of fun to still be building software and tools, but be tackling some interesting new learning curves. It was having a deep think about sort of Docker, which is a bread and butter sort of tool for a lot of developer operations work these days. I wanted to unpack a bit what some of the antecedents were. I'm not sure that everybody quite appreciates I think the evolution, sort of the convergence that's occurred over the past few years that have led to uh, what I think is can simply be described as uh, virtualization as a packaging mechanism for software, especially software services. Anyway, if that topic fascinates you, then you're in for a treat in just a few minutes as I share the feature. If it's like any of the past episodes, something that sparks sharing some of your own experiences or questions, I encourage you to actually hop on freenode.net and uh, come to the hash CMDLN uh, channel, or you can search for the command line, you should be able to find it. Uh, there was a good discussion from the last episode, and I'm probably going to slaughter his nickname, a Dodd Dummy. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm thrilled about the fact that he has Dummy in his name, but definitely as we got into a discussion this past week or the week before, about this sort of question of what it takes to sort of hack on tools to help people build tools, uh, I got a sense that there, there may be some self-deprecation involved there, that he's not literally a dummy, but rather tries to keep to a beginner mind. He called out some good sorts of questions around organizational buy-in that you may also have to be able to create spaces effectively for people to take on these kinds of challenges. Problem finding, recruiting and engaging people in problem finding can be challenging. He called out his current workspace. Well, call out's probably a little strong, but he characterized his current workplace as one that prefers not to see people complain for the sake of belly aching, but rather come with constructive solutions. I push back a little bit thinking that that may provide an unnecessary barrier. He understood that, but culturally they're just not there yet. I think there's a lot. People just ha have observations that you can tap into. I think he got that, and we were largely in agreement over most of what we talked about. A lot of good stuff, though, I think, about being an effective change agent. Really, the, the question I kind of left dangling about uh, how can you bring people along to embracing this sort of mindset of applying their creativity much more broadly and universally rather than on sort of uh, narrow definitions to produce some output, but rather to work on the problems that get in the way of producing those outputs or work on problems that just make uh, our work lives 
less humane than they could be otherwise. If that sounds fascinating to you, and that's just a teaser, I'm sure I haven't done the full conversation justice. I definitely appreciated some of the questions and thoughts that that uh, they brought to that discussion. Please do come and find us on IRC, and you can talk about this upcoming topic, any of the past topics, or anything else that's on your mind, things that you might like to see me talk about in a future episode, too. I remember the first server that I, I worked with that was worthy of being called that. I suppose the mini computer that my dad had at his office that I've talked about from time to time probably technically is the first server, but it's not one that I used in any meaningful way. I played some games on it and I had some appreciation, certainly as I got older, of what it was, what that technology represented. In college, IBM donated uh, a couple of labs worth of RS6000s. This, this was the workstation class Unix systems that they were making at the time running AAX, their flavor of Unix. There was one lab for computer science, the larger one, and a smaller one for physics. I was working at tech services at the time. We were responsible for the student labs. The computer science and physics labs really weren't quite our remit. Definitely the physics lab they supported their own systems. And I suppose with the kinds of things that they were running on those workstations, the kinds of software that they needed help with, that was a bit outside of what typical liberal arts students might be able to help with. Computer science, I'm not really sure why they let us support that. I guess because there were a lot more uh, disproportionately math students and computer science students in the tech, the student tech consultancy uh, housed uh, in the last couple of years I was at college in the basement of the library. This meant that the student consultants got access to the computer science lab, the so-called birds. All of the workstations were named after different kinds of birds like blue jay, kingfisher, and so forth. I only went once or twice. There weren't really many calls where we had to go out and help a student with a problem or do any kind of hands-on administration probably mostly because of the caliber of the hardware and software running on those systems. We went just to take advantage that at least for the first year after they were donated, we had access. I definitely remember playing around with uh, the X server for the first time, getting some appreciation for its novel architecture, basically being able to punk somebody sitting at another workstation by sending annoying screen programs back and forth. Somehow, one of the more senior uh, consultants, a student who I think graduated and then actually came back as staff, was able to finagle one of those RS6000s to be housed in tech services. We had an uneasy relationship with the computer science department. Before we moved out of the math building where the CS department was housed, we often had um, heated discussions with them about access to other server systems that they had. A lot of students would end up running IRC or BitNet relay chat, things of that nature. The CS admins took a bit of a dim view for, for to activities like that. Understandable. They're responsible for the resources and the cost. At that time, bandwidth must have been, uh, I don't know if it was prohibitively expensive, but it could have could not have been a trivial cost to them and seeing frivolous use at that time, um, something I think that they wanted to guard against. That being the case, that being the context of that relationship, it was kind of surprising that this senior consultant was actually able to finagle one of the RS6000s out of this group. Not only that, but with the naming scheme already ensconced, and if you know programmers and computer science nerds, you know how much we love our cute naming schemes. He got away with 
what he defended as a bird name, Greyhawk. The D&D listeners in the audience will hopefully recognize that reference. Certainly if you're of a certain age, I don't know if that mystical realm in the canon of uh, especially the original TSR publications of uh, D&D adventure modules, uh, hopefully that lives on. But that was his inspiration, certainly. We had uh, several of us fun playing a campaign set in that world. So whether the CS folks let us have it because they recognize the caliber of the joke uh, or they were just feeling kindly that day, who knows. This was the system where I cut my teeth on HTML. This was at a time when to do any kind of server programming, you were doing Perl and CGI. It led me into my first job, probably my next encounter with servers of interesting natures. I find it fascinating the relationship that, de that developers have, software developers, with uh, servers, networks, and the kind of resources that they need to deploy or operate the software that they write. For me, it somehow has been something that I have managed to find some better access to. Maybe I give off sort of a sysadmin or net admin vibe, despite having always worked professionally, really, more as a programmer. Regardless, the experience that I had at that first job out of college was, I think, typical of what a lot of programmers uh, go through in dealing with servers and networks, that somebody else takes care of it, that you might formulate some sort of a requirement or request for resourcing to fill whatever is that you, that you need to build out, but how those resources get provisioned, how they get managed, often is a mystery. What I think is really interesting is a convergence between that sort of old school take on server resource management and virtualization. It's something that uh, I actually worked through a lot of these original technologies, and I'm not sure that I would have predicted that uh, full weight um, virtual machines and even uh, the lighter weight sort of hypervisors uh, that we're seeing the kernel compartment-like approaches would have led to uh, a place where I would have characterized a virtual machine as effectively a way of packaging software. I think, though, if you do look back at some of these deep antecedents, it does start to make a certain amount of sense. For the better part of the first year at that first job out of college, I did work that was pretty consistent with what I did as a student consultant at college. This isn't surprising, I suppose. Uh, they had a contract, a large one, south of the city of Richmond in Virginia, that needed uh, desktop and application support, a little bit of network support, and evenings and weekends we could earn a little bit of overtime working with a network overhaul. They were upgrading to an even then dated version of Novell Netware something definitely more modern than the network that they had in place. Again, I really kind of took for granted the deep expertise that was around me. There were a few people in particular, uh, a fellow by the name of Jason, who came out to do some sort of uh, in-depth troubleshooting. He was, I think, definitely one of the more expert consultants at that job. He ultimately, I think, must have recognized something in me in recommending when the first opportunities to do some web programming came up uh, that I might be a good fit for that. That led me back to the home office where I decamped pretty much in the server room, hanging out again 
with server and network admins and just through osmosis kind of absorbing some of what they did. There, I think I got a slightly better sense, if not down in the weeds, of how they did their job in terms of uh, configuring things, sizing, most importantly, I think trying to understand the needs of customers, the needs of software uh, that they wanted run, how much memory, hard disk, what kind of network capacity. As I was thinking about building out a home network for the first time, I think this was uh, pre-Wi-Fi or just in the cusp of Wi-Fi, I definitely remember some of the network engineers talking about sort of the capacity planning even with a, a 10 meg network, uh, how you would think about it out the router, uh, how you would think about the backplane to provision enough network resources for the number of systems that you had to support. I don't think it was until the job after that, when I was really cemented as a programmer, that I had a greater appreciation for things above the hardware in terms of a good uh, system or, or server administrator. We had dedicated on-site hosting I think we also were starting to get in that job. This was uh, in uh, D.C., actually, in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, just outside of D.C. This was uh, an early web consulting firm during the bubble, really. So the in-house hosting capacity that we had was for smaller customers and clients, was for piloting systems, and then as we scaled, we might move things out to uh, the Dulles corridor to any one of the early data centers at that time. Certainly, as a growing programmer, I started to appreciate the need to have the OS well set up, having dependencies in place. This was before, I think, any kind of real dependency management that we take for granted today. It was my first experience with Linux. We certainly didn't use it for hosting at that job. I think uh, I worked on the first project that used anything Unix-like. It was uh, largely a Microsoft shop. You might find that a bit surprising that that factored early into my career, but the tech was uh, approachable. It was easy to, to self-learn on. I, at that job, started down the path that I followed, I think, pretty dedicatedly to the present in terms of using Linux full-time. We had some Solaris boxes, I think because Linux was back then in the late 90s, still deemed to be largely unproven. Nobody knew quite how to scale it or manage it in the way that they did traditional Unices. Solaris was close enough, but still, that at that job and the job after uh, a, a startup working on online procurement systems, definitely people who knew SunOS and Solaris much better than I did, again, really reinforces appreciation that if you needed an environment in which your program could be run, that in and of itself was quite a job of work. My first experiences with real virtualization, uh, at least that I was aware of, might have used some big iron systems back in the day, mainframes that use virtualization in the ways that they often did. But my first firsthand experience really was at that job in the opening years of the 21st century. Uh, just after the bubble burst, working at that online procurement startup. I, at that time, was an avowed Linux user. I'm only taking really kind of one break from that. Uh, nobody was really quite ready to do that, even for a developer. I found myself using VMware, the recommendation of a college buddy. At that time, if uh, you were around, you might remember, they started more doing desktop virtualization. They hadn't gotten into server virtualization. That was not really something anybody was doing back then in terms of 
any of the reasons that we, I think, well understand to do it today, from uh, security to more effective use of hardware. I actually remember, um, I think towards the end of that job, while I was still using VMware just to interface with the sort of uh, office stuff that I had to, because there weren't uh, good enough equivalents and there wasn't really any kind of compatibility if someone sent you an Excel spreadsheet, you needed Excel at that time to open it. There wasn't just really wasn't any other way to do that. I think that OpenOffice and then LibreOffice really have changed that as well as sort of changing opinions and pressures on Microsoft. Anyway, I definitely remember when VMware came out with its first server offerings. It was kind of a little mystified, like, why would you do that? Why would you install that as kind of the bare iron OS and then stand up multiple virtual machines? I think a lot of the market at that time wasn't quite ready for it either. It seemed to recall a lag of at least a few years before that product line really took off and even then in a lot of ways was still a hard sell at least to smaller shops that uh, just maybe found it easy enough at that uh, tinier scale to stand up servers on their own and manage them by hand. VMware did pioneer virtual disk formats that I think in many ways do kind of set the table for what was to come with containers and Docker. It was something that was more, at least the desktop scale, a convenience that you could snapshot and back up a VM in case something goes wrong. It wasn't always necessarily something that you thought about proactively. I mean, I suppose at times if you were imaging these, uh, these virtual machines, you might think about getting them set up into a good-to-run state, making sure that enough things were installed by hand, and then snapshot that, and then you could just clone that off endlessly you could have that as a resource. It definitely was uh, the time when uh, sort of those low-level imaging tools also were popular. I want to say Ghost maybe was one of them, if I'm remembering right. We certainly used that at that first job out of college or, or its precursor. And I think even the IT guys at that online procurement shop used it in terms of standing up new machines, all except for mine. I usually just walked in the door and said, give me uh, a machine with no OS. I'm happy to put my own operating system on with the understanding that if I need help, I'm on my, on my own. And if I need to use things like virtual machines to have the necessary compatibility, uh, I'll do that. I maintained for years that desktop license to VMware out of my own pocket, just with the understanding that they'd leave me alone and let me compute in the way that I wanted to compute. I don't think anybody argued with the results. I think I was very successful doing that. I think I still am, although I think things have softened. People seem to be more receptive to running alternative operating systems and certainly the growth of the web. The transformation of a lot of the tools that we used to use as desktop apps now as web services have made it far easier. If you have a browser, something that is as good as any other browser, it really doesn't matter what operating system that you have. However, virtualization has continued to evolve. My One of my most recent jobs was my first foray into sort of the kernel compartment approach, something lighter weight than simulating another kind of computer. So uh, uh, a Windows box on a Linux system or a Windows system on, on a Mac. When I started working as a staff technologist on Measurement Lab at New America at their, at the time, Open Tech Initiative, what's now the Open Tech Institute, don't ask me what the difference between an institute and an initiative is, I just know that it was a big deal when we changed from one to the other. 
Measurement Lab was using uh, vServers. This was definitely a direct predecessor of containers in uh, modern vintages of Linux. vServers were sort of root or change root on steroids. If you're not familiar with the change root, or uh, I think that's right, I think that's what root stands for. The idea is it's sort of a way to compartmentalize uh, a program, a service usually, in a way for security purposes to keep, so that if somebody breaks into your file sharing service or your web service, that they are not able to get access to the rest of the system. It also has a nice side benefit of making it easier to have particular versions of libraries and environmental configs that are separate from the rest of the OS. If you have a service that's tricky to set up in this way, uh, a Chirrut was uh, often a good way to get it set up without having to use a particular distro or put in a lot of effort to get mutually incompatible services sort of running on the same box. For Measurement Lab, which was ultimately a research project, vServers did a really good job of, of separating across a globally distributed fleet of machines the software that each of the researchers was running. So allowed them to collect network statistics in ways with that were harder to uh, sort of argue were of uh, compromised fidelity. They were The boxes were over-provisioned physically, just in terms of RAM, disk, and network. The vServer walled everything off so that you didn't have to necessarily worry about overlap or cross-contamination between the running uh, virtual instances. One of the things that Measurement Lab did that I don't think was common with the vServers, and again, now we take for granted with Docker, is deploy a network stack per each of those uh, virtual server instances. That was really important with Measurement Lab. You definitely wanted dedicated streams going into those compartments. They would need to take high fidelity timings and other data on the tests that they ran, whether that was for your broadband capacity, uh, throughput and speed, or it was detecting forms of discrete forms of, of interference censorship or, or even just network management that might be abused in some ways. The job I had before that working for a software shop, again, a startup, not really a startup. They were still small, but uh, fairly established in the online education tools space. I think it was the first exposure that I had to, to Amazon. These are things that are increasingly have started to converge as well. The idea of the Elastic Computing Platform was attractive almost from the get-go, that you could stop worrying quite as much about physical instances and maintaining systems in racks. Rather, you could think about your needs flexibly and scale up or scale down by what you needed in order to um, deploy what you needed just at that moment in time rather than having to go through a lot of capital expenditure and operational planning. This was still full weight virtualization like I had used on the desktop for years rather than the more lightweight flexible systems that we see now even on Amazon let alone other cloud providers that ability to, to right-size your deployment was still highly attractive, even if you're dealing with entire machines and you still had to do a lot of sort of low-level setup of the OS. That snapshotting, that ability to ghost a drive, actually came in handy. That was something you kind of could take for granted in those early days of AWS, that you could get the low-level OS up and running, you could install the things that you need, and then you could just clone it. Uh, to however many nodes that you needed. So for a uh, heavyweight uh, enterprise Java server stack, that was a non-trivial task. Being able to 
get a, a captive image of that that could just be spun up over and over again was a huge win despite the manual effort that had to go into setting up the initial image in the first place. In various of my online social media remember when features, I've seen recently some of the work that I did at that job. I was working on migrating our backend database to a post-relational system that I talked about, I think, at that time. The podcast was ongoing at that job. It was, it's been ongoing for most of the jobs that, that I've worked at, to be honest. Uh, not sure if it's still in the archives, but you might be able to go back and find some discussions about um, SQL and no SQL databases and some of the pros and cons of both kinds of approaches. Regardless, I even found, according to those recollections, some value for uh, being able to stand up developer instances to, to set up mini clusters to test things out, to work on distributed systems without having to have a lot of hardware. At my current job, we make um, various online marketing tools for small businesses. I've shifted recently after two and a half years working on one of the products as just a straight up developer and a development team lead into more of a developer operations role. This is something that spans some of the kinds of people that I worked with early on in my career in terms of server administration, network administration, certainly tackles some of the challenges that I just talked about that made Amazon, when they first launched uh, their uh, AWS platform, so attractive to take away uh, a certain degree of the drudgery. And as that offering has evolved, they've taken more and more of the drudgery away, they've simplified things considerably. You can now stand up all kinds of different databases without having to worry about particular installations and, and library compatibility. You just get something that is ABI compatible with MySQL or Postgres or whatever it is that you're interested in. A lot of the work that I'm doing requires me to get that much more familiar with Docker, which is what got me thinking about how did we get here? This is something that I think increasingly people are taking for granted. It brings a really nice language for actually uh, literally layering up the specification of what the actual virtual image is going to look like. It's kind of cool because rather than having to do it interactively, I mean, you kind of sort of can but instead it's more like a build mechanic. And it definitely aligns much more strongly with this idea of um, packaging up software. Here we're not talking about an installer, we're not even talking about necessarily uh, binaries that might require some situation, but everything, soup to nuts, top to bottom, that a sophisticated modern application might need. And we're definitely talking much more about server applications, but not exclusively. I've been surprised at some of the novelty and creativity that people have applied in using Docker, the fact that you can craft from, uh, well, there there's a scratch uh, layer in Docker that is no OS install, and you can just pull in the things that you need, copy them in from outside the container, or bootstrap just enough of a network tooling or package management to bring in the things that you want. It really is kind of phenomenal paying that forward, being able to subdivide even a developer system Instead of having to hand set up your database, messaging services, any number of sort of resources, you can grab or collaborate with people to create reasonable images that provide those and then just focus on the software that you're working on. Certainly when you talk about more on the ops side of things and you want to deploy those at scale, having an easy to reason about sort of unit of composition on the operational side 
is hugely attractive, just on the face of it. I find it helpful to sit down and kind of think through the antecedents of a system like Docker. Hopefully you found it entertaining, useful, or valuable. If you want to share your own experiences with any kind of virtualization, let alone Docker, I'm happy to hear it and share it with everybody else. Definitely look forward to, as I get deeper and deeper into this very new role for me, working on developer operations, more based on sort of a table stakes of having Docker. So think in terms of cluster management, Mesos, Kubernetes, things of that nature, and cloud providers, not to, not just AWS, but G-Cloud and beyond. That's going to do it for this episode. As always, I want to thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed the program, please do tell a friend. If you have a question, suggestion, or correction, you can send those to feedback at thecommandline.net, or you're welcome to record a bit of audio with your smart device and send it to the same place. Until next time, don't forget to hack your world. I would like to thank the Internet Archive for media hosting and bandwidth. The views expressed on this program are my own and where applicable those of my guests and in no way reflect those of my employer or anyone else. This show is produced from 100% recycled bits. Except where noted, permission to recycle those further is granted under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. That means you're free to change this show as much as you like as long as you don't alter credits and you share your changes under the same license. 